0: And guys will be glad to give you one. I'm just glad to be out of the house anywhere. We have been, um, I got good news and bad news. Somebody stuck their head in my office this morning and said, are you ever going to finish this sermon? And I said, yeah, but I'll start start another one, I'm sure. So we're going to finish our looking at the Sabbath today, and then next week we're going to look at another aspect of our resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, it just, it's a principle and an area of my life that it's thrilling for me every day just to wake up and realize that I'm a child of God, that the Lord loves me that much, that if I'm all alone and where I am and what I'm standing for, even if I'm the only one, I'm all right because God is with me. Never leave me. Never forsake me. He is my rest. God alone is the one that I, my hope. That he's my rock, my refuge, my however you want to do your acronym. He's my strength. He's the one that I trust. Because I know Randy's not got the capacity to do what needs to be done. We like to quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the literal translation of that in Greek is, I can do what God needs done because Christ is my capacity to get it done. doesn't sound as cool, but that's what it says. He's the capacity for me to be everything that God wants me to be. And I hope, if nothing else, as we've looked at Sabbath and as we wrap it up today, hopefully, that that's my goal. Dan said, well, you only got one blank to do, Randy. You can't do one blank? I said, I said, Dan, 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 how long have we known each other? So if nothing else, I hope you take away from this that in Jesus Christ, and I was sharing the verse earlier, you come unto Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden, and what does he give you? Rest. Rest. You're still going to be labored, There's still things you've got to do. There's still things you're burdened with, but he'll give you rest. The capacity to handle it, the capacity to understand that God is in control, the capacity to just relax and trust him because he's trustworthy. And not, you know, enjoy being a believer, enjoy. One of the things I love about coming to church on Sunday morning is you people seem to like each other. Have you ever been to church where it seemed like nobody even liked each other? Man, the little church I grew up in, if you sat in the wrong pew, you might not make it home. And I didn't know that until I sat in the wrong pew one Sunday and and this lady just standing there staring at me. And finally, my mom came over and get me and said, he's just stupid. It, it'll be all right. And I had no idea what I'd done wrong until till later on. I found out. I was listening or reading a story this week about a little girl. Went to spend the summer with her grandmother. She loved being there, with her grandmother. She was having a great time. Just her and her grandmother. And, and then Sunday came. And the grandmother was all about the rules and regulations of the Sabbath. And, and so she got up. And she was just, she was laughing and running around the house, playing, getting ready, to go to church. And her grandmother got all mad at her and said, You can't laugh and enjoy yourself. It's the Sabbath. So she goes to church and Later that afternoon, she's walking around their little family farm, and she sees this sad, droopy mule. And she goes over to the mule and says, "Hey, you look like you go to my grandmother's church." <laughs> I hope that you not only enjoy coming and being with each other, but you love one another. Now, you're not going to like everything about me. I don't know. I don't know why, but you're not. And there are, things, there are things about you that I, I probably don't like. And one of the things I love about the Bible is the honesty of it. And I was sharing with a friend of mine this week who's also a pastor, and we were talking about some relationship things. And one of the things he was talking about was somebody who had hurt him severely. And how do you get past that? Because he would known I had dealt with some of that. And, and, I, and I said, you remember the story in the Bible of John, Mark, and Paul? And it reached the point where Paul said, I don't want John Mark on this next missionary journey. Just, I don't want him. And then later on, you see Paul writes, please send John Mark to me. I need him. Whatever it was, they got, they had a problem. And we know what it was, but they got past it. And then Peter and Paul, who were, when you think about the book of Acts, it's Peter and then it's Paul. I mean, they, you know, they've were they got a candy bar company. I mean, Peter and Paul that couldn't have been much bigger than that. They were, and they had a serious, like, face-to-face, don't make me punch you, dude, disagreement over Jews and Gentiles being part of the church. God had to get Peter's attention over he was wrong. So it does happen, doesn't it? But the beauty of understanding who we are as Christians is that we, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. We rest in the God of the universe. Our Savior is Jesus Christ, the Omnipotent One. He knows every intimate detail of your life and He loves you anyway. As we come and we love each other and we revel in who our Lord is, if you look on your handout. We're going to start right in the middle there today with the the passage from Colossians. We've seen the Old Testament shadow of the Sabbath. We've seen that Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath. He is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that the Sabbath was created for our benefit, not to be a burden, like the little girl with her grandmother, but To be for our personal benefit, both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, just to step aside and see the incredible things that God is doing and revel in those. And then get up and go back to work sharing the one true God who we rest in. So what I want to do today is focus on who Jesus Christ is as Lord of the Sabbath and what it might mean to you and to me on a very personal level. So let's start with this passage in Colossians and look at it together. Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 17 is there on your handout in the screen. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Notice there's two groups. There's the uncircumcision of the flesh. And then there's the we're together and the us. So the uncircumcision of the flesh or the Gentiles and the Jews, two groups, us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you based on what Jesus has done, who you are in Christ. Let no one judge you in food or in drink. This will be specifically targeting the Jews here here who have become Christians. We'll talk about more about that in a moment. Or regarding a festival, a new moon, or, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, plural, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And we've dealt with that at great length. So, you notice verse 17 where it says it's the shadow and the substance. The Jews kept the Sabbath as a sign of their trust in Yahweh, their God. and G, We celebrate Jesus, who's Lord of the Sabbath, as our faith is in him. He's the one that gives us rest. He's the one that allows me to know that at the end of my time on earth, because of the work he did at the cross and rising from the dead, he conquered sin and death. I rest in him. I relax in him. And when I die, I go home. It's not popular now to say it, but I still say it at every funeral I do of a believer. I begin every funeral I do, if the person was a Christian, by saying, We lay them to their final rest. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. You're going home, you're no longer having to, to labor and deal with sin and strife. You're going to paradise. It's a great thing. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, and I share this at every funeral I do for a believer, that the day you die is the best day of your life if you're a believer. Because you really do go home. So I want us for a moment to look at this Colossians passage, or Colossians, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And look at what he's saying. Number one, to the Gentiles, verse 13, the uncircumcision. You were dead, yet Jesus has made you alive together with him. You see, Gentiles were not part of the initial old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Now, it's all covered under the Abrahamic covenant, faith, you're saved by faith in God, faith in what God has said, the coming Messiah. When we know now that Messiah, we look back, and that Messiah is Jesus Christ. They simply knew he was coming. What he's saying to the Gentiles, and it's throughout the writings of Paul, you see it repeated over and over again. In the church, it's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's neither slave nor free. It's neither male or female. It's one. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He says it all kinds of ways that when it comes to the church, it's simply, are you in Christ? Or you are not. If you're in Christ, you're part of the church. You're born again. You're his child. You're a part of his bride. Corporately, that's who we are. It's the bride of Christ. We're his body. That's why we need to like each other. You, you like your body? You want to take care of it. Now, some of us might be an arm or a bicep. Some of us might be an armpit. But we're part of the same body. We love each other. We care about one another. Because of who we are in Christ. So he says to the Gentiles, you've been grafted in. He talks about in Romans in Ephesians. He talks about your part of the same body with the Jews. But Notice verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. So you've got two ways. It's against us. It's contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way. He nailed it. Wiped it out. Took it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. He says it three different ways. Here's what I want you to notice. In context, what he's saying that, that he's taken out of the way and what he's nailed to the cross and what he's wiped out. Is the handwriting of requirements that was against us, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you're a Jew and you're all hung up on the law, he took care of that. If you're a Gentile and you're just a generic sinner, which we all are, again, read Romans, he's taken care of that too. He paid your sin debt. I'm doing a, a Monday Thursday service at the church here in town, I'm going to be one of the Speakers here on Monday, Thursday. That's the way that works, Randy. And so they said, pick whichever one you want of the last words of Christ. You could speak on that. So I emailed the guy back. and I said, I'll do it. It's finished. And he emailed me back. He goes, That's the only one that's already taken. You see, you know how these preachers are. They always take the easiest one first. I said, All right, I'll I'll take the hard one. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That one nobody wanted. So Jesus says, It is finished. Maybe the most significant statement ever made on planet earth it is finished I did it I paid that debt Greek, it's it's a debt paid in full and if nothing else if you get nothing else out of understanding who your Lord is he paid a debt you owed I owed sinner he paid your debt you couldn't pay it no matter how much money you gave to the church you couldn't pay it no matter how good you were you couldn't pay it. All your righteousness is a filthy rag. You had a debt you could not pay. Jesus wiped it out. He removed it. He nailed it to the cross. It's an incredible metaphor. The handwriting of requirements that was against us, Jew and Gentile. Here's the picture in the, in the day they were they lived. If you had, had a written law or contract that you owed somebody something, like a promissory note, and it was in effect until that debt was canceled. When the debt was paid, there were three ways that they indicated that the debt was paid. Either by blotting out the names, drawing lines through the contract, or driving a nail through it, the contract. Which Jesus did on the cross, didn't he? He took my contractual obligation, my sin debt, he drew a line through it, he nailed it to the cross, and he blotted it out. So now when God looks down at me, he sees not my sin debt. He sees my sin debt covered in the blood of Jesus Christ because it's been atoned for. It's what the word means covering. Jesus paid my debt. Now, he also sees Randy, his boy, doing stupid things. And he might have to chastise me. You might have to punish me. You might have to discipline me. You might have to give me a little urging. You ever have to do that with your children? You ever have to remind them that, hey, we, we don't do that in our home. That's not who we are. They, we don't do that. That's wrong. But still, they're still your children, aren't they? And I'm still God's boy because Jesus paid my debt. Bought my way in redeemed me all the words we like to use to describe salvation focus on jesus paid for it he did the work i get the benefit he paid the debt i'm set free boy if you just if you ever in your prayer life just meditate on that how much it means that i've been set free so it's been paid contrary to us galatians chapter 3 the bible says this Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. one of the Jews to understand that we might be justified by faith, not by keeping the law. If you are Christ, if you are born again, Paul's writing to Galatians, to the church at Galatia. If you are born again, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, Jew or Gentile, and heirs according to the promise. Jew or Gentile. Abraham was a believer, and if you're born again, you're a genuine seed of Abraham, follower of Abraham, what he believed, you believe when you trust Christ. Romans chapter 6, Paul writes this, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not, or God forbid. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not have known that the covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now here's his point, both in Romans and in Galatians. God gave the law to point out to the Jews that you need a savior. You can't be righteous by keeping the law. You need to be redeemed, you need to come to me by faith and say, have God, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Trust me, follow me, because you're not going to be able to do it on your own. And even to this day, people still believe, just do the best you can, and you die, and you'll stand before God, you're a good person, you'll get in. There are none righteous, no, not one. The only way you gain access to the presence of God from the lips of Jesus Christ, he said, I am the way. I am the way. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. You can go through any door you want to go through. The only door that will get you into the presence of God, both now and forever, is Jesus Christ. He'll give you everything you want, but he alone can give you that. Now back to Colossians. Look at verse 15. If you can put it back up there now. There we go. Verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I love this. Jesus didn't just go die on the cross and rise from the dead. That's pretty cool. But Paul reminds us through the Holy Spirit that he disarmed our enemies. Total victory over our enemies. He disarmed principalities and powers. In the Greek there means he plundered a vanquished foe. It's a military term. Specifically referring here to Satan and his minions and any other foe we might have. Jesus disarmed them. They are vanquished, defeated enemies. He made a public spectacle of them. I love this metaphor. What literally is talking about is that when you conquered someone in that culture as a Roman centurion or a general, you conquered someone, you would take the vanquished leaders and you would parade them through the streets publicly for everybody to see what? I own them. I defeated them. That's what he's saying here. Jesus disarmed them, they're no longer your enemy. They've been defeated. They may exist, but they're defeated by Jesus Christ. He made a public spectacle of it. When you understand the irony of this, when you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, we'll talk about this in a few weeks with Palm Sunday and Easter. When you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, the way they crucified people was Golgotha. And if you've ever been to Israel, if you ever go, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's a public thoroughfare. They, who did the Romans crucify? the worst criminals, and their enemies. And they crucified them publicly, so when you pass by, you saw what? Don't mess with Rome. But this is what will happen to you. So they crucified Jesus publicly, (laughs) publicly to mock him, and they did mock him, and they spit on him. They beat him. Read what scourging literally means. It'll disgust you. They did all that to the Son of God. Then they publicly hang him in that thoroughfare and say, this is the king of the Jews? Caesar is king. And then the Holy Spirit has Paul right. Just remember, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. They thought they were making a public spectacle of Jesus. Who was making the public spectacle of whom? Jesus was. By dying, for the sins of the world, including the sins of those men who did that to him, who crucified him, who beat him, who scourged him, who who shot dice for his clothes, who laughed at him, put the title over him. Jesus loved them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He loved them. That's who your savior is. That's who is Lord of the Sabbath. That's who you rest in, is that God. He made a public spectacle of them. The Bible in 2 Corinthians says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I love this passage. He leads us every day in triumph because of what he did at the cross and on Easter Sunday. And through us, his body, his church, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I want us to pause for a minute and just think about that. This afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, the rest of this week, Right now, we're all here in this place. The Lord's ministering us through his word. The Holy Spirit is in our presence. But tonight, tomorrow, all week, you're going to go a bunch of different places, aren't we? You see the mental, and this is throughout the Bible, the metaphors that we'll understand. Every place we go, God is allowing us as part of the body of Jesus Christ to diffuse knowledge of him, Think about all the places you'll be this week. Are there people around you that need knowledge of God? If they're breathing, they do. Sure they do. And God allows you the awesome privilege to be in their presence and to let them know who Jesus Christ is. You, may not have, you don't have to lead a Bible study at work to do that. It might be something as simple as being kind, loving to a, a co-worker, struggling with something how can i pray for you i want you to know i care about you you never know you just don't i challenge you with this before i I would challenge you with it again as we move forward today every morning when you wake up before you walk out the door and you may not even you may not be going anywhere but to live fit or boot camp if you're crazy or hang out with some friends You never know who God's going to bring in your path. Just say, God, give me an opportunity today to diffuse a little knowledge. Not knowledge for knowledge's sake. Knowledge that changes people. The word of God. Look at the way he puts it. He leads us in triumph. You're born again victorious in Christ. Through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I love the, the fact he uses the word fragrance. Because the Bible talks about we as a sacrifice unto God or a sweet-smelling fragrance to him. Our prayers are a sweet-smelling incense to him. I'm commanded in the Bible to be a living sacrifice unto God. I don't know everybody I'm going to contact this week. What I do know is every one of them needs a touch from God. Maybe I'm the guy he's going to use to do that. Maybe you are. Ask God give you that opportunity see what happens A challenge ask him today lord let me let me diffuse some knowledge see what happens make sure you smell good sweet fragrance verse 15 for we are to god the fragrance of christ among those who are being saved within the body of christ we encourage each other and among those who are perishing. Do you see that? Both at church, with other believers in your home, or other places at work, fellow believers, but also what other group? Those who are perishing. (coughs) Perishing, are those believers or non-believers? Non-believers. God wants you right in the middle of non-believers, letting them smell you. hope you get the metaphor he wants you there first of all he wants you to smell good but he wants you there they need to smell you got never you'll remember this if nothing else smell good for god so i feel an acronym coming on smell good for god every day smell good for god give you me a mental image. I, uh, got a little one-year-old granddaughter and of course she loves me more than anybody on the planet we all know that you know, you know one-year-olds are just so cool and fun to, the very first word was grandy and that's cool but i wear the same aftershave every day and so if i hold her for any period of time at all like the other day she fell asleep and i'm holding her well when i give her back to her mom and dad what's she smell like here's the exact thing they say "Liddy, you smell like grandy now i hope that's a good thing <laughs> But when you're around people, do they know you're a Christian? Can they smell it on you? Do you diffuse that fragrance? I love Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about it. Let, let me tell you what he did for me, my family. Both encouraging fellow believers and non-believers. 16, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God, in Christ. In other words, we're not trying to use church, the Bible, crusades, meetings, to peddle the word of God, to rip people off. You know what? There are a lot of people out there doing that. I personally know them, I've seen them, dealt with them, and you've seen them. Using the Bible for personal gain and lying to people. When the world sees that and they say, I don't want to be part of that, you know what, I don't blame them. That's why it's so important <clears throat> that we be real, that we be genuine, so they can see what is real Christianity. It's not, Maybe it's not what I see on the screen. What's real? Diffuse it. Back to Colossians. We'll wrap this up. Verse 16. So, which literally means therefore, let no one judge you, food or drink, or regarding a festival, or new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The substance is of Christ. In other words, specifically to the Jews he's talking here. Don't get hung up on your dietary laws and don't get hung up on the feast days and the Sabbaths and the new moons. Those were a shadow. Jesus is a substance. If you want to celebrate them, do it. But you don't have to, to be in Christ. Don't let people put that burden One last thing I want to do today, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be done. Hebrews 10. We're going to fill in our one blank today, Dan. Dan just passed out. Someone may need to go to the sound booth. On a personal level, Jesus is not only the substance of the Sabbath. He is our sanctification. It's like they throw big words, and every now and then I don't know what they mean. He's the substance. He's our justification. We get saved through him. He's our glorification. I go to heaven because of the work he did. We've talked about that. But in between, from the time I'm born again, till I die, it's the process of sanctification, living the Christian life, being like Christ, growing in my faith. I am being saved. I have been. I will be. I am being Sanctification, I am being. How's that accomplished? Look at look at chapter 10, verse 8. Previously saying, Hebrews 10 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. They are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The context of the book of Hebrews is this very simply. these are Jewish pardon me, <coughs> Jewish people who have gotten saved, they have come to accept Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. but they're struggling with the law, wanting to add the law to that. And the whole book of Hebrews is about that. Jesus is superior to Moses, to angels, to Joshua, to the law, to the priesthood, to Aaron. You don't need those. You've got Jesus. So he says to them right here and to us, you are sanctified through Jesus' one sacrifice. You do not need animals anymore. Nothing else has to be sacrificed. Jesus did the work. <clears throat> the word that's used is he is propitiation. He satisfied God's demand for a sacrifice that was perfect. You see, they had to sacrifice bulls and goats over and over and over again. Then Jesus came along. How many times did he die on the cross? How many? One. One. It was the one sacrifice. And it was also the final sacrifice. Look at verse 11. Every priest, Old Testament Levitical priest, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly, see that word, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They were a shadow. Jesus was the substance. But, see that word, verse 12, my favorite word in the Bible, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered, how many? One sacrifice for sins. What's the next word? Forever. How long is that? In Greek, it's forever. Forever. It's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. I love this. Forever. Here's something that will really excite you. He sat down. He sat down. Notice where he sat down, at the right hand of God. Two things I'll say about that. The context is why it's a final sacrifice. The priest repeatedly made the same sacrifices, even for their own sins, as a shadow, a picture, a type of the one to come. And when they went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest went in sprinkled blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, the mercy seat, he was not allowed ever to sit down. They tied a rope around his leg and they had noisemakers on his robe in case he died or God struck him dead. They didn't hear the noise anymore, they'd drag him out. Why? How come he couldn't sit down? Because his work was not finished. What does it say about Jesus? He made his sacrifice, and then what did he do? He sat down. He sat down. Get the picture? We saw last week God created in six days, and then he rested because he was tired. No, because he was finished. It was beautiful. It was good. Jesus sat down because his work was finished. That's who your high priest is. We're going to talk about that next week. That's who he is. That's what he's done for you. Notice where he sat down. Look at the verse. Where did he sit down? At the right hand of God. If you read the Bible, that's the seat of honor, majesty, authority, and power. That's who your God is. That's who you rest in. That's the Lord of the Sabbath. Waiting till his enemies, look at verse 13. From that time, when he finished waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering, one, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. That's me and you. Everyone who's ever been saved, while we're alive, we are being sanctified because of the work Jesus did. The Holy Spirit now works in us through us so we could go out and smell good. Be sanctified. Romans 8 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. The bottom of your handout, you'll see a little phrase, little word there. Keep it holy. Keep it holy. Bible says, Peter writes, be holy because he is holy, quotes the Old Testament. That simply means set apart, set apart. We ought to be different. Final thing I'll say, and then we're going to pray about Sabbath. Eugene Peterson, pastor, put it this way. Sabbath is that uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves from from our own activities, enough to see what God is doing. It could be a day. It could be a few moments at work. It could be while you're driving along in your car. Just make sure you rest in who your Lord is because he's Lord of the Sabbath. It promotes trust in God. It reminds you not to be greedy. Trust God, gives you time to rest and refocus, just relax. And it's a testimony to the world that your God is more important to you than anything. Let's pray. Father, we pause before you as God and thank you You've been so good to us, not just in blessing us, but Lord, if we, if, if we just think about who Jesus is and that he died for me and he paid my debt, my debt, I couldn't pay it. No matter how hard I worked or tried, I couldn't do it. He paid it so that I not only get to go to heaven, but I have peace and hope right now that I can rest and relax. In the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. I pray that for all of us as Christians. And Lord, for somebody here who's not a Christian, they would say, I need that rest. Come to Jesus. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we